You're listening to the City World Radio Network, high-definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world, www.cityworldradio.com. Morph Mom Moments, and it is much earlier uh, than I'm used to being on the radio, and uh, although I'm up, I'm not used to functioning (laughs) this early in the morning, so forgive me for many mistakes. Uh, Again, this is Morph Mom Moments. We're normally on Thursday nights from 7 to 8, but we have two very, very special guests this morning, so my amazing producer, C, also agreed to get up very early and meet me here so we could speak with these amazing people who are going to share amazing stories today. Um, the first of which is uh, Ranger Randy Remeglia from, uh, as you've all, you've read the book, you've seen the movie, you know the story from Black Hawk Down. Well, tonight, uh, Randy's show, No Man Left Behind, The Real Black Hawk Down, is premiering on Nat, a National Geographic channel at 9 o'clock. An amazing, an amazing story where he and fellow uh, soldiers who were there that day, that night, are going to recount what happened um, and sort of tell the story behind the scenes. He'll be calling in very soon, and I, I literally and cannot wait to speak to him about this. And then at 9.30, we're going to be joined by Esther Wingard, another amazing, amazing person. She's a uh, retired Marine officer, a uh, fighter pilot, who was involved in the late 90s, early 2001 in Operation Enduring Freedom. And we're going to hear all about that today as well, or this morning. Oh, i got to keep remembering how early it is. Um, so before Randy calls in, I'm going to take this opportunity to sort of do a quick explanation of Morph Mom so you guys understand why you're here and at <laughs> this odd time in the morning and what it is I do and why I am just so honored and lucky to be sitting here um, speaking with Randy and Esther today. Uh, so about four years ago, I, I was a prosecutor many, many, many years ago. I stopped, had kids, tried to go back, and I, I apologize to those if you've heard this before. And I know you have, but for those joining in, it was a tough time. Couldn't go back, didn't want me back. I really could not have gone back, in all honesty. I don't know how much help I would have been after that long out of the courtroom. Couldn't figure out what to do. So rather than reinvent the wheel, I went out and interviewed women all over the country who could share their stories about what they did and how they did it and the steps they took to get there and with the goal of paying it forward and helping other people to do the same. And sometimes people are not always as kind as they could be or not always as encouraging as they could be and rather um, allow that to be a deterrent. I thought, wait a minute, let's go out and find these women who've gone through all this, who can encourage people, and then in turn help others to get through all the, the 
the lack of confidence and the negativity and the you know whatever it is you're experiencing fight through it and get through it all and do it do exactly what it is you always wanted to do you always dreamed about doing or maybe something not exactly in your game plan but because of life and the, and the curves that we take put you somewhere you never thought you'd be but you still have to perform and you have to figure out what to do so that was the premise of Morph Mom. So we have a website, morphmom.com, where you can go and see all these videos. We have over 600 videos from all over the country, really cool stories. And by the way, if you have a story you want to share, I'd love if you'd reach out to me on Morph Mom. And it's, again, morphmom.com. And if you'd reach out to me and tell me your story, I travel, I'll come to you, and we can get it out there. And my only request is that it's going to help somebody else. Um, you know, that it's a kind story, and it's going to show people whether win or fail you have a support group. You have this army of morph moms who are there to help you and figure it out. Um, besides the website, I also write for Huffington Post. And if you go, if you, I guess, Google Morph Mom Moments or Morph Mom for Huffington Post, it'll come up as well. And I tell these amazing stories because they need to be told. They really are women who have accomplished things that need to be shared because they want to help others as well. The following year after Huffington Post... I thought, okay, this is great. Like, you know, the internet is fine for some and it's enough to just watch the videos and to hear the re- and to read the stories. But some people need a little bit more. Some people need the actual human connection. And I'm actually one of them. I need to be with other people. So I thought, I'm going to all these cities. Rather than waste the time when I'm there, you know, uh, after my interviews that night, I host now cocktail parties. So I'll I introduce all these women so there's an actual connection made. And again, that connection can be, oh, and Randy is calling right now, and I'm sure everyone's happy to not have to listen to my Morph Mom story anymore. So bear with me. I'm going to pick up Randy's call. Uh, Randy, this is Kathleen. And hey, Molly is connected. Hi, Randy. How are you? I'm good. How, how are you? Am I speaking with Kathleen? You are. This is Kathleen, and you're on Morph Mom Moments on the radio live right now. And I have to tell you, Randy, I am beyond excited and thrilled and honored and grateful that you were willing to come on the show today because I, you are my hero, as is everyone else who was involved in that, as is every soldier out there risking their lives for us on a daily basis. And I just want to tell you how much it means to me that you came on tonight and um, are going to share your story. Um, and I was just explaining on the radio that your show actually premieres tonight on National Geographic. Um, at 9 p.m. tonight, No Man Left Behind, The Real Black Hawk Down. Yes, ma'am. Um, so, Randy, I have introduced you a little bit, but in, I think people want to hear from you and <laughs> no longer from me. <laughs> um, and I explained that you were a ranger and uh, involved, back then at Black Hawk Down, but there's so much more to everything. So I'm going to ask you to sort of tell us about yourself and how you came to be a ranger and how you came to be in Mogadishu in Somalia at that time and, and what happened okay well I want to thank you for your comments um, it, they are appreciated um, and you know and I want to thank all your listeners for uh, taking the time you know to uh, to tune in well again you know, essentially- I, I don't mean to interrupt but I have to say one more time to tune in and I hope I am relaying how much and all of Morph Mom is how thankful we are for everything you have done so thank you for listening, but for us, it's thank you for doing everything you did. Well, well you know, I, I, I sincerely thank you. I don't have the words to, you know, to really describe, you know, how much that means. But just understand that it is, it is appreciated. Um, you know, now to the question, how did I become a ranger? Um, I, I grew up in a small town, and... Uh, I, you know, I was originally from White Plains, New York, and we moved to North Carolina at a young age. So I, I you know, I proudly claim I was northern born, southern raised. And, um, you know, after high school, I realized that, um, you know, down there at, at that time, you know, in, in the late 80s, you know, it wasn't unusual just to get a job in a factory and work. But, you know, for me, I knew there was a lot of world out there and uh, that I wanted to be part of something bigger than me. Um so I, uh, there was an Army recruiter that I had spoken to numerous times through my senior year in high school. And, you know, I finally decided uh, after I graduated that, uh, you know, I wanted to join the Army. So, um, I, you know, I basically went into the office and talked to the sergeant, and he said, you know, what do you want to do? And, you know, I grew up in the woods. So I said, you know, I want to do what you do in the Army. I want to be a soldier. And, uh 
you know, I started looking around at posters, and there was this poster of these guys with painted faces in, you know, rubber boats jumping out of helicopters and sliding down ropes. Um, just all this cool stuff, carrying, you know, cool weapons. And I said, who are those guys? And he said, those are the Rangers. And I said, what do they do? And he said, they're, they're like commandos. And I said, yep, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to be. And uh, I went off to the MEP station, signed up, and uh, left two weeks later. And, um, you know, it was, uh, <laughs> it's been history ever since. It definitely has been amazing history. And when you said, so going from, you join the Army and then to become a Ranger, how much more training does that involve? Well, the, the thing with the, the Ranger Regiment, it's, it is the, uh, the way for, you know, a young soldier to make his way to the special operations community. So obviously you have to be successful in basic training. Um, you have to be able to go to airborne school and succeed in airborne school. At that point, you attend the Ranger Indoctrination Program, which they call a RIP. Um, and that program is designed to, uh, to weed out those that may not be suitable for the Ranger Regiment. And upon completion of that, you're assigned to one of three battalions in the 75th Ranger Regiment. Um, you get there, and once again, you're going through essentially a trial period. Um, the guys through what what is now probably referred to as hazing or bullying, um, you know, back then, they made sure you had the right stuff. Um, eventually, you put your time in, you know, you... <laughs> You take the, uh, what we call smokings, the, the heavy PT sessions, um, and uh, you're eventually assigned a date to go to ranger school. Now, keep in mind, when you get to the ranger regiment, you're still a private. In order to transcend the private ranks to the non-commissioned officer ranks, at least in the regiment, you have to attend ranger school. So keep in mind that you know, although Ranger School and the Ranger Regiment have the same name, it's the difference is Ranger School is just that. Um, a, a young man doesn't have to go to Ranger School to be a, to be an Army Ranger. If he serves in the Ranger Regiment, he's an Army Ranger. So that being said, once you attend Ranger School, um, you come back and you're typically promoted to an E4 and assign what they call a team leader position. Um, and this is, you know, Ranger School gets you prepped uh, for leadership. And, and keep this in mind, too. Um, you know, the Rangers, you know, they pride themselves on, on, on training harder, training lo longer, training better. Um, they're the only unit in the Army that can send privates to Ranger School. Every other unit's got to send either a non-commissioned officer or a lieutenant or an officer so oh, you know that goes to show you the quality of of the young men that are coming out of the regiment and how long until how long is the ranger school ranger school itself is 72 days but with the ranger regiment they make sure you're prepared so mm -hmm. you spend an extra two weeks in, in pre-ranger so for um a, a young ranger in a regiment going to ranger school he's looking at about 96 days in all Okay. Yeah. And I'll add that uh, when I actually went to Ranger School, I weighed in at 166 pounds. And when I graduated, um, I weighed 127 pounds. It's a leadership course, um, you know, that is designed to put um, stresses on you, whether it be food deprivation or sleep deprivation, and still expects you to complete whatever the task is that's assigned. And is that similar in each of the different divisions with the Navy, with the with all the different divisions, like the, the Navy SEALs? Is is it a similar thing, Ranger, to the Army as maybe the SEALs to the Navy? There's a certain special force unit within that division? Well, think about this, though. Um, I, I would say, now remember, you know, I was in in the early 90s, over 20 years ago. And back when I was in, the comparable unit to say, um, SEAL Team 6 would probably be the Army's Delta Force. Um, and, and I would say Delta Force would, would probably also be comparable to your, you know, to, to, to your SEAL units. Um, the Rangers are more of an, 
they were an ent- they were uh, I hate to use the term entry level, but there's no way for a soldier to come in off the street, go to basic training, and go straight to special forces or Delta. I see. Those units typically take professional soldiers, and when I mean professional soldiers, I mean um, soldiers that have been in for more than more than one enlistment, and they're typically out of their teens into their earlier or mid-20s. So they're looking for a little bit more mature individual who is committed to the service. Um, the, the Ranger Regiment, you know, was the premier light infantry unit at that time. So, and it was the springboard to, to, to further yourself into U.S. Army Special Operations. Well, I would say having... Now, and, and those of you listening, when you hear the story of Black Hawk Down, there's no way you would in any way question that a ranger is not 100% the elitist of the elite, as are all the men who were there that day. And when you hear what Randy did and when everybody did, I, I think there's no higher calling. And I think, once again, it takes a very, very, very special person to be involved in any of this. And I think the mantra, you know, no man left behind which I want to get into in a minute as well, um, the fact that being involved in this as a ranger or a Delta, anything I think that you're involved in, and with this mantra, no man left behind, and really, really giving your life for the person next to you would suggest that it takes a very, very, very special person to be involved in anything, anything like this. And I guess, which leads me to the next question, when was your first deploy? So now you've gone, you're now a ranger. When was your first deployment? The first time we were deployed to a real-world uh, situation would have been the, the Mogadishu deployment. That, that was in August of 1993. And that was your very first deployment? Yes, ma'am. Oh. We, had tra- <laughs> we had trained, um, you know, we, we trained heavily um, for many different types of combat environments. Um, and whenever you're doing, you know, what they called a snatch and grab mission back then, typically that was handled by Delta. Well, remember, Delta isn't a unit with large numbers, and at that time wasn't even formally acknowledged as being in existence by the U.S. Army. Um, so in order to allow Delta to do what they needed to do to capture the guys they were looking for, they, um, assign the rangers, my company, Bravo Company, 3rd Ranger Battalion, to be that force to provide security um, and a larger number of soldiers to combat the Somalis if need be. And when you were, how did you feel when they said to you, this is it, you're going, you're, you're on your I'm way excited. to Somalia? Were you excited? Finally. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, think about, um, you know, think about, you know, as, as, as a parent, you know, you watch your kid practice, but if he never gets to play the game, right. you know, he's, he's, he's almost deprived. And, and you've got to understand something, that, you know, we were committed to, you know, I used to say God Country 75th Ranger Regiment yeah. back then. We were committed to uh, carry out the needs of, you know, the United States. So we didn't care who or where. Right. We just wanted to go fight. And... How soon from the time you landed until the time, or I guess you arrived in Somalia in Mogadishu, until the the event uh, events transpired? Um, we, it was probably the better part of six weeks before the final mission for us, which was the October third raid. We had performed six previous raids, and um, you know, for the most part, had met light resistance up until maybe the fifth or sixth raids. Um, at that point, they had, you know, they had assistance from Sudan, from training camps in Sudan, which I think were later identified as Al-Qaeda camps. Um, and we could definitely see a difference from when we started to um, the last couple of raids we we actually conducted. Um, the, there were more men, they were better armed, they were better shots, and they started using rocket-propelled grenades uh, oh. in force. Oh. So now the time comes, and they say, you're going out. You're get-. And I guess it was, a, it, it was to catch 
a group of people, right? They they were you found a location. I guess there was an insider who said we That's think correct. they're going to be here at this time. Yep. And I, once he confirmed that, um, it was it was relayed back, and uh, you know the familiar um, yell of "Get it on." Yeah. Um, you know, was heard. So at that point, you know, we gear up, go out to our helicopters, and, um, you know, uh, Sergeant Watson comes up with a, uh, a hand-drawn map of uh, where our blocking position is going to be. So this is the target building, and we say, okay, we load up and we take off. So you arrive, and at first, did you realize at first the... Um, the groups that were coming, like, were you able to tell just how how ready they were when you mm-hmm. arrived? Initially, you know, keep in mind um, the helicopters moved fast. Yeah, and even though the Somalis were aware we were going to conduct a raid because they can hear the helicopters, um, until those helicopters actually hover, we kick our ropes out and slide down them onto the ground. The Somalis aren't sure as to where exactly we're going to go. So it takes time to mobilize, mm-hmm. and you know one of the one of the easiest things to identify is the sound of gunfire. So once there's a firefight, it's pretty easy for the other Somalis who really didn't have any communication, you know, um, right. formal communication. It was easy for them to figure out, oh, that's where the Rangers are, and at that point they started converging. And. I- and uh, forgive me if I'm wrong about this, but so you guys were sort of stationed on the four, or were you stationed sort of on the four corners of the building at the time? Yes, ma'am. Delta was, um, they were tasked at fast rubbing on top of the building, and they cleared room by room the building from the top down. So they would either capture or eliminate combatants. You know, there were a couple individuals they were looking for in particular. Um, and while they were doing that, uh, there were four Blackhawks that dropped Rangers off on each corner of the block. Now, our particular blocking position was right there at the target building. So, you know, we pretty much were right there throughout the whole whole raid leading up to when Super 6-1, the first Blackhawk, was shot down. Were you close to when the first Blackhawk went down? Was it close to you? It was above us. It was. it was above us when it was hit, um, so all we had to do was look up from our position and watch it spin out of control. And as it's spinning out of control, how do you know? I mean, I know you're, you're instructed to do something, but your gut instinct, is it to run to them? Is it to, to stay where you are? How do you know what to do in that situation? Like, how do you know, where? who do I help first? Well... At that point, I mean, remember, we had pretty much accomplished our mission within 30 minutes of being on the ground. Um, what, you know, what wasn't anticipated was the heavy Somali resistance for the ground convoy to come in. Um, so there was a little delay there. But once that Black Hawk was shot down, um, we knew that, okay, mission's not over. You know, the next step is to go secure that Black Hawk. Right. Um, soon after, though, Blackhawk Super 6-4, which is Mike Durant's helicopter, was shot down as well. Um, his landed outside of, it was far enough away where, one, we didn't have the resources right there to secure both crash sites. So other Task Force 160 aircraft actually went in and attempted to keep the Somalis off of the crash site. Well... Soon, uh, two Delta, Delta operators, Sugar and Gordon, um, you know, essentially pleaded with command to let them fast rope in um, to secure the crash site. Now, now here's the thing to keep in mind. Those two guys were committed to going onto the ground without any guarantee additional resources would, would be able to come and support them. Um, eventually, command um, let them do it. They fast drove down. Um, they held off, you know, essentially hundreds of Somalis for as long as they could until they ran out of ammo or, and were overwhelmed. Um, but they pretty much, um, you know, they pretty much kept Mike Duran alive. And, uh, yeah, of course, he was, after they fell in battle, um, he was, of course, captured and uh, held for 11 days. Ugh. And so at that time, when they were over at the second helicopter are you making your way or are you already at the first 
Black we're Hawk. making, you know, it was soon after, and, and, and I don't recall exactly, um, but everything transpired rather quickly. You know, as soon as the first bird was down, there was a second one shot down soon after. Um, we had a pretty good fight on our hands just trying to get to the first crash site. Right. Um, right. Also, there were three other aircraft that were, were essentially shot down. Um, they were shot um, and damaged, um, but were able to make it back to the airfield, but they were out of the battle. Um, so the Somalis did a very good job that day with uh, the rocket-propelled grenades. I mean, when you fire 150 rocket-propelled grenades, eventually you're going to hit something. Ugh. Is there a sound? This may be a ridiculous question, but at least when it's in the movies, and you, you hear this sound, and it's just the most terrifying sound. Do you hear that, that, that wishing sh- I can't even explain it, but do you know oh, it's... the bullets passing by? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. The um, and it's it's ironic, um, you know, because we don't train to be on the defensive. We always train to be on the offensive. Um, and one of the previous missions, the first time that I'd been shot at, when I heard that noise, I paused for a moment and I had to I had to consciously think, what did I just hear? Oh my gosh! And and when I say this, it's trust me, it doesn't take seconds. It takes split seconds. Um, but I realized, oh, that's those are being shot at me, and you know, you immediately drop onto the ground, and uh, you know, do what you're trained to do, and that's return fire and try to engage the enemy. Um, but yes, they do make they do make a noise. Um, they ricochet off things. They blow, you know, bits of concrete and dust and sand. Um, you know, and the one thing I'll say is, no matter how well trained you are, you know, five inches, you know, left or right, is the difference between being wounded and being killed. I I have to tell you, I know the story. I've read the book. I, I mean, I'm I, I am one of your biggest fans in the entire world. I am on the edge of my seat right now, gripping the microphone as you're telling me this, <laughs> literally almost in tears, listening to this right now. I think just hearing you relive the story and just explain it and there was never a time i mean you were there you were there to help the man next to you you were there on your other side and all of us back at home and that to me i have chills as i'm saying this to you my i have chills i i I am speaking with a hero like i i really do mean that from the bottom of my heart that you were able to go (laughs) through this and like you said and i and like i said i I, kathleen i I really appreciate it but the people that really know me and, and tell you They'll tell you that I am the last one to ever refer to myself as anything like that. Um, I just consider myself as, as someone who went and did their job, and uh, I'm you know I served back then and I'm, I'm still serving now. Um, but you know you referred to that bond, and that's one thing I want to point out to the listeners. That bond between soldiers um, is that's that's one of the things that separates the show they're going to see tonight versus a lot of stuff that's been previously produced. It really does focus on the the individual relationships, and remember, it's those relationships that that carried the day. Um, you know, it's a, it's essentially a timeless story, Kathleen. You know, you get a small group of soldiers that hold off a much larger group, and they they overcome the odds and become victorious. I think that's one reason um, that the story itself is still pertinent. It's it's timeless. Um, you know, in one of the conversations, you know, Kenny and myself and even Michael have is, you know, you, you're like, wow, when we were walking out of the hangar that day, we never thought we'd still be talking about that battle 23 years later. Are are you still close with many of those guys? You know, I don't talk to, there's, there's many of them that I don't talk to that I was reunited with for the first time in 20 years. Wow. And Kathleen, we picked up where we left off. I'm sure the it's experience. one of those. It's one of those things where you know, like with Kenny and I, we may talk once or twice a year, um, but when we, you know, when we reunite, we just pick up where we left off. There's, it's it's a it's a very it's a very special thing, and I think you know all soldiers um, have you know share that to a degree, um, particularly you know when they've seen hardship. You know, I think it's common whether it be you know police or fire. Um, or even teachers, you know, anyone that, that really puts it out there, um, you know, they, 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 they have that opportunity to form those bonds. But I think it's also a special type of person that in those situations, because you, you don't know who you are until you're put in that situation. You know, you hope you're yeah, the one. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Um, and one thing I'll say, with the Rangers, they prep you for that. I mean, you are pushed 
to your limits and then past your limits. And it's done on a regular basis. Um, you know, there's no way you could train for all the contingencies that we faced that day. But what we did do is we trained and trained and overtrained to the point where we thought, you know, we were we were darn near invincible and um, there wasn't anything we couldn't accomplish. And we were only emboldened by the fact that we had, you know, Delta with us, which, you know, they're basically supermen without the cape. And uh, as Kenny refers to Task Force 160, he, he calls them the Captain Kirks of the aviation world. <laughs> so, you know, if you look at the, the quality of the soldiers that fought in the battle that day, um, it, it, from the U.S., it, it's a time it didn't get any better. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, I have to mention, I think you're all superheroes without capes. I really do. <laughs> I, I don't think there's any distinction. And for listeners out there, by the way, Randy has continued his superhero status. He's currently a firefighter. So Randy, his entire life, has given of himself to others. And I, I think that should be, I think, as you just mentioned, the policemen and the firemen and the teachers, everyone who puts himself out there on a daily basis for all of us. But you've devoted yourself to that. In every career path you've taken, that's what you're doing. You're out there helping all of us. So I hope you know how much that's appreciated behind the scenes as well. And, uh, I, I thank you. Um, I, I have to go back again to, and, and this is my own personal thing, and I'm sure everyone's like, I don't care about you, Kathleen. I want to hear about Randy. No, 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 absolutely. Ask away, Kathleen. Well, why I get chills like this. So many, 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 my grandfather was a POW in Stalag 17, and he was there for two and a half years. and wow. And I think that's why this means... I mean, it means so much sure. to everybody, but my own personal experience. And he came back, and he was hurt, but he, he survived. And he, he kept the um, dog tags from everyone that he could. He hid them under a board, and he kept drawings and sure. letters to people. And it meant so much to him. It, again, this no man left behind. Even saving those dog tags at the risk of whatever to make sure that, in essence, he was bringing everybody back home and bringing the story back home and telling their families Absolutely. what they had done. And I think... Obviously, it's such a part of my history, and my college roommate was. I, I, I literally. You can relate. I, I can't. Well, you just, can relate. I can relate, and and I can so respect what you've done because I knew my grandfather. I knew he was such a good man. And then when I hear these stories about, it's not even a question. You're not leaving anyone behind. It's just not even a possibility. You're there. You're going to help everybody, and and no one stays behind. And that to me, as I mentioned earlier, literally makes my hair stand on end on my arms. I just, when, did you ever question that before it happened? Like, were you ever worried, like, if ever, if something ever did happen, how would I react? Was that ever even? You know, I, I think we all, you all have that question, but remember, you're conditioned. Mm-hmm. Um, they're conditioned to the point where, you know, sure, that's in the back of your mind, and, um, you know, there at times there's there's apprehension or maybe anxiety, but you know you still have to perform. And um, you know, the, like the first time you're on the, the first mission we did, you know, we're as we're moving through the mission, you're like, oh my god, we're really doing it. Um, and what you realize is it's what you've trained for is exactly what you're doing. You just happen to be doing it in a different place. Um, and this time. Um, you know, the there's there's a chance of an enemy combatant, and you're gonna, you know, you're gonna have to do what you've got to do to continue, to continue on to ensure the mission's accomplished. Um, so once again, I go back to the, one of the the great aspects of the regiment is that we were prepared. Right, and we we haven't even discussed. Well, I mean, I don't even know what the scariest part is <laughs> of everything. But as you're leaving, so it's been how many hours? Were you actually there before the, the total? The total mission from start to finish, start to finish, was uh, seventeen hours. Oh. Seventeen hours. I mean, just it's it's unbelievable. But at the, at the close of seventeen hours, you're now able to get the triage, to get the wounded soldiers, to get the everybody's going through. Can you explain what happens then? It's not even over yet. Well, the once you know there were no U- United States assets available, no resources. So our commanders went to the Pakistanis and the Malaysians who had armored vehicles and procured armor from them in order to try to break through the Somalis to get to us. Once they got to us, after taking their own casualties, there was only enough room to get our wounded out. Uh, the rest of us that could still fight, um, 
attempted to run next to the armored vehicles um, for for shielding, um, at least on the one side from the Somali militiamen, and we only had to fight to the one side. Well, within the first block, they left. So here we are running down the same stretch of road that we fought up the day before. As soon as we got to the block, our, the block musician the previous day, right next to the target building, I was actually shot. Um, and the bullet that struck me um, actually grazed the arm of my saw gunner, John Collette. Um, and keep in mind that our uniforms were sterile. We didn't have anything that, that signified um, United States or Ranger Amalia or Rangers or anything like that. The only thing we did have on the right sleeves, um, an American flag sewn on. And the bullet that, that struck me in the back first grazed John's arm, blowing the American flag off his sleeve. Oh, my gosh. So <laughs> I always thought that was ironic, uh, very symbolic. Um, of course, you know, once you realize that you've been shot, you know, you do that bodily systems check to, okay, let me find the exit hole. Maybe I can plug it. Oh, okay, great, no exit hole. All right, let me breathe in. Let me see if I've got a sucking chest wound. I'm waiting for gurgling. Great, no gurgling. Um, that means I can breathe. You know, I, I move my arm around. I still have mobility. Okay, I'm still in the fight. So, you know, and all that takes place within split seconds, um, and you keep moving. Because the last thing we could afford to do was stop to treat another casualty and allow the Somalis to once again surround us. Oh, my gosh. So we continue the run out, uh, make it to a blown-out building where we, we have some cover. Uh, some 10th Mountain Humvees come in. We get the rest of the Delta operators out. Um, once the remainder of some of the armor, the stragglers, came by, we started running down the street behind the armor towards the stadium that the Pakistanis had secured. And and these stragglers, at this point, you sh- it was beyond the market. It should have been in a safer place. Were they coming from the market, or were they sort of living just closer to where you were on your way to? The the militiamen? Yeah. Yeah, they were, you know, Kathleen, they were all over. Um, they were, you know, any conceivable place that they could conceal themselves um, from in an attempt to shoot at us. Um, you know, they, 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 they attempted to take advantage of. Oh. And when you, and so can you tell us what happened when you were shot and, and the extent of the injuries? The, the bullet um, first grazed John Collette's arm, blowing the, the American flag off his sleeve. It caught the corner of my bulletproof vest, um, which probably slowed, the tra- slowed it down somewhat. Um, it struck me the back of the shoulder and actually ricocheted off my shoulder blade. Um, fortunately, it didn't have enough velocity to penetrate my shoulder blade because I was later told that if it had, that would have been enough blunt force trauma to uh, shatter organs. Um, and, you know, if you, if you think about that, you know, that one bullet hitting me in the back could have actually stopped the progression of our, our movement out of the city. Um, so, you know, not only thankful for me, it's, you know, it's, I'm thankful that, that the wound wasn't more severe um, and it didn't hinder us from, uh, you know, making the run out. And does the adrenaline just keep you, does it sort of say, okay, hold off pain, <laughs> i got to run? Like, is there something? Well, you know, I'll tell you, when after, you know, after being struck, um, yeah, I realized I was a hypocrite because I had no problem shooting, um, using my own weapon to fire, um, but um, I, I sure didn't like it when I myself got hit. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I think, uh, you know, when, when I get scared, um, my natural reaction is I get angry. Right. Um, and that's how I handle fear. And, right. um, and at that point, I was furious. <laughs> and, um, um, you know, that little extra uh, bump of adrenaline was, you know, it was there. And, uh, you know, and at that point, though, you, you know, you really, you're, you, you realize this is, you know, this is life and death at this point. And, uh, you know, the one thing I, I I said to myself is, you know, I'm getting out of the city, and I'm getting my guys out of the city. So, um, you know, if, if, if anything, being wounded and still able to fight actually probably, you know, was more of an empowering factor than, than, than a hindrance. Was there a time, and I, I can't even imagine over the course of 17 hours, <laughs> there were millions and millions of times, when 
you were worried this may not turn out the way you thought it might. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, the, the battle, you know, what, what the listeners should understand, the battle is a series of small victories and losses. Um, you know, just because you win the battle doesn't mean you've won every aspect of the battle. Um, you know, there are times when you're winning and there's times where you're, you know, you're, hold, you're, you're managing to hold your own and no, nothing more. Um, I, I think for me, um, the, the time came when I started questioning, you know, the outcome was when I, I finally made it into the casualty collection point and I walked in and I saw all the guys that were wounded and there was probably as many of them as there was, there was of us that could still fight. And oh, as I looked yeah. at the floor, you know, the floor was very shiny and, and what it was, is it was blood. There was a lot of fluid on the, on the floor and I could see the reflection from the lights. Um, it's very dimly lit, and I, I just kind of was able to take five minutes of myself finally, and I, I was able to put my back against the wall, slid down the wall, and I'm sitting there, and, and I just had this odd sensation on my hand, and as I started rubbing my fingers together and trying to look at it in the light, I realized it, it looked like a black liquid on my on my fingers, and I smelled it. I realized that it's blood, and I, and I looked down around me, and, I, and I'm sitting in this pool of blood, and... Um, you know, at that point, I, I, I didn't even get up to get out of it. I just kind of I kind of sat there and collected myself because in my mind's eye, I started going through, okay, wh- wh- where's the next closest U.S. asset? So you start thinking Germany, um, and then you start realizing, well, it's probably 13 hours from Germany to get assets here. Well, it takes it probably take 12 hours to get to get troops mobilized in order to get them loaded up and get them sent. So you start, you know, I, you start looking at contingencies in order to try to get other U.S. troops there. Right. And eventually, I led, you know, my mind led myself to the White House, and, and, and I'm picturing the White House at night, all lit up, and I, and, I, and, I, and I realize that it doesn't matter what decisions made there on that particular night. There's nothing that can be enacted to change the outcome of this battle. Oh, my gosh. So for a, for a United States soldier to realize that, although he's part of the most powerful military in the world, when the only things you have to work with are what you came into that city with, that's a very sobering thought, um, and, um, you know, the, the last thing I could do was, you know, let my guys think that, you know, Sergeant Randy Ramali is losing hope. You know? Right. So, you know, I myself, I tried to, you know, try to keep a smile on my face, try to tell a stupid joke where I could, you know, try to reassure the guys that we were getting out of this. And, I, you know, you had to do that without even, without even knowing if, if you were actually going to make it out. You didn't even know if you were telling the truth. That's where I think the superhero comes into play what you just said and there's this poem this Rudyard Kipling poem that my grandfather actually had with him hidden at Stalag 17 and it was If by Rudyard Kipling and I'm gonna not relay it directly I'm gonna paraphrase it but it's like when if all others around you are losing their head and you keep yours and I think right there is the superhero (laughs) part and the part (laughs) we all want to be that person one day when everything is going down and you have to maintain that sense of support and that sense and not just supporting yourself but in turn you've got to be supporting everybody else around you so you can keep going you can't give up and i just i i i pray for that quality in myself i pray for it in my kids i pray for it in everybody and i think that's right there is what rudyard kipling was talking about when he wrote that <laughs> poem there's no question because that's just an absolutely terrifying scenario but you did it Kathleen, can you make it the last question, please? Sure, sure. Um, my last thing, Rand- well, Randy, I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you so much for coming tonight. Thank you for all that you've done for all of us, and we're here today because of you. And not just in the in that world, but as well as a firefighter now in Maryland. Um, and as I said, I, I hope that we can all emulate that quality, and I hope my children have that quality. And and just thank you. Thank you for everything. And I want everyone to watch tonight. How can you not immediately be sending your DVR right now for 9 p.m. tonight, <laughs> the Nat Geo channel, No Man Left Behind, The Real Black Hawk Down. And, again, this No 
man left behind, I think, is exactly what Randy just taught us all tonight or today, this morning, whatever time it is, whatever time frame. But it's been an absolute honor to speak with you, and I'm forever grateful. Thank you so much, Kathleen. And uh, I'll be watching tonight. Thank you, Randy. So for all of my listeners out there, um, I cannot believe we just had the honor to speak with Randy, and we'll all be watching him tonight. But we have another honor right now. And Esther, can you hear me? Let's see if Esther can... Good morning. Uh, okay, bear with me as I'm putting my phone on for Esther right now. Um, Esther Wingard, we, ha- we have another superhero on right now. And her- Esther Wingard is a retired Marine officer and was a fighter pilot. And in the late 90s and early 2001, she was involved with Operation Enduring Freedom. And uh, Esther has called in today from Colorado, this morning, rather. And... Um, it's just an absolute honor, as it was to have Randy, to now have Esther on the line. Um, Esther, would you tell us about yourself? Hi, good morning. Um, first, I just have to clarify, uh, I was an attack pilot. Oh, attack. I'm, I, I'm sorry if I misrepresented that. No, it's fine. That's just kind of a little joke. But, you know, I'm an ADC carrier, but I, I'm mainly in my sweet time to the Um, now, Esther and I, now I have to explain that poor Esther was, oh, wait, sorry, we just got very loud. Uh, one of my college roommates, Bridget, who I think is listening tonight, is a retired Marine officer as well, and was one of my dearest friends in the world and still is today, and I was just always in awe, as I explained earlier. I am 100% in awe, a fan, I can't even tell you, I'm forever grateful for every military person in, that's ever existed and continues to be. And when Bridget called and said Esther was willing to come on today, it was, an, again, an honor. And I can't, um, not only that, but it was actually, we now have, in line with Morph Mom, we have a mom now who's going to tell her story and how she sort of went from the Marines to now being a stay-home-at mom. And we were talking about this a little bit last night, and Esther is asking you what it was like, or, excuse me, or what that transition has been like. I don't know if That's Esther an can... excellent question. Our connection is not super great, but I think you're asking what is it to make the transition um, from being a Marine to being a mom. And, and I will tell you that um, it was an interesting transition. There's a certain amount of, of question as far as um, who is this, this new individual, you know, now that I'm a mom. But really, it's the same person. Um, and, you know, I've always um, really tried to just integrate um, the different parts you know, who I was, there's so many different hats that we wear, all moms do. Um, we have, you know, moms who are, who are working, um, who come home and have to get dinner on, and, you know, you just have to find ways to integrate, you know, all those parts of who you are. You're a wife, you're a mother, um, and you're a, you're a working person, a professional. And, um, yeah, there was a certain amount of, uh, of transition. Um, when I uh, became a mom, I was also transitioning from active duty um, two reserves at the same time. So um, there's that, too. You know, what does it feel like to not put the uniform on every day? And is this okay? You know, and the answer for me was absolutely. I think we have different seasons in our life. Um, you kind of you transition, you know, through your life from one season to the next, whether it goes from college, um, it might go uh, to a working life maybe, and then you become a wife and a, and a mother. And, you know, we move through those seasons. And, uh you know, you're going to lose a season wishing you were in a different one. So it's, it, that's the challenge, right, is to just be present in the time that you're in. Right. And we had actually talked earlier um, last night about this. A- Esther was saying in the military, things are very defined by poss- you know, your uniform, your stripes, your role. Your It's a very definitive place to be. People know exactly who you are, where you are at the time. And, Esther, we were talking about this last night when the transition was when you didn't walk into a room with, uh, with a uniform and what that was like. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. Um, you know, and there was a couple of years there where I, I had the opportunity to make that transition um, mentally. You know, I was wearing a flight suit. I was instructing in the reserves down in Kingsville, Texas, and I might have a, a diaper in my flight suit pocket. Um, <laughs> 
you know, and so that was kind of interesting. Where huh, I wonder if anybody's had that there before, <clears throat> and probably yes, there are many women who have done that um, and, and walked that line. You know, and then it was it was nice, you know, because we just kind of gradually did it. You know, I gradually moved to the reserves, and then I changed to a different reserve job, and then I wasn't flying anymore. And that was an interesting transition too. Like, what does that feel like? I just took my last, potentially my last flight, and definitely my last flight in the military aircraft. Um, and then we moved um, up to northern Colorado where there's not a lot of military here. And so not having, um, you know, that, you know, walking around in the grocery store, you're, you're just, you're a mom. And that's okay, you know, and just kind of, but it, it's definitely an interesting feeling. Um, and then once a month, you know, in the reserves, putting on that uniform, yeah, people look at you and they know immediately they have the context. Um, they're going to listen to what you say. Yeah. Um, you have a rank on, you have wings on, and, and they see that. Um, but when you're just walking around the grocery store, you're just there, and then you define yourself by your actions. You know, are you going to be kind to the grocery store checker? <laughs> I mean, you know, you, you have to define yourself in different ways, and you have to make that choice. Um, you can't rely on something else to be the definition of who you are. You right. Know, who you are by what you do. And I was telling Esther last night that's almost the definition of Morph Mom and why we did this, because it is such a hard transition, no matter what you're transitioning from and what you're transitioning to, to have this army of women there to sort of say, you know, we've got your back. Like, we're here. It's hard, but you can do it. Esther, I want to go back a little bit and tell us about um, Operation Enduring Freedom and what it was like back then. That was an interesting time. Um I was in the fleet, uh, KC-130 squadron at the time, and uh, my husband and I were hiking uh, on September 11th, and, and yeah, you know, you, you just immediately knew watching the footage that um, things were different, um, uh, and from there, <clears throat> both of us were flying in fleet on the East Coast, and it was a question of, okay, who's going to who's gonna go in first, do you think? Whose squadron is going to get called up? And, mm-hmm. and it happened to be mine. Um, and so, you know, we packed up and, and we went, and that was, yeah, it was a very interesting time, but at the same time, and I was kind of looking at some of what Randy was saying, it's your it's your game time. It's time to go in and do what you trained to do. And so it felt um, it felt good. You know, you were defending, um, defending the nation. It felt right. The mission was defined, um, and, and we were ready. And as I said to Randy and to you and to everybody, like, I hope you understand behind the scenes how much it means to all of us and how, that's what I meant, it really is an honor having you on tonight to explain this to us. You know, we go to bed at night and we don't even know what's going on across the world and what you're doing for us 24 hours a day and it doesn't go unnoticed and it doesn't go unappreciated and I know that's not why you do it, but I think you have to know how much it means to all of us. Um, During that time, during Operation Enduring Freedom, what was, um, I guess, what was the most meaningful, if there was one, experience that you had when you were over in, Af- in Afghanistan? Um, you know, I, that's an easy question for me. Um, I I didn't get to fly a whole lot when I was over there, which at the time felt um, kind of like, you know, being downgraded to JV. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but I did have a, a great experience. Um, I served as the KC-130 uh, planner um, and liaison to Task Force 51, which at the time you'd have to really do back in some archives to figure out what that was, but uh, it was a, a task force led by General Mattis, um, and mm-hmm. it incorporated the 26th Mew as we were over there um, on deck in Kandahar getting ready to spearhead further insertions into the country. And I got the, the opportunity. My laptop was parked right next to that of General Mattis, and he's an amazing leader. Um, he was a, a brilliant uh, Marine tactician, is still, and uh, and that was... Um, that was really the highlight of my career, just getting to, uh, I didn't get to fly too much, but I did get to be instrumental in a process that, um, and to watch his leadership uh, through all that. He's just a, a fine uh, leader and a, and a Marine. And was there a scariest moment for you then as well? You know, honestly, um, I guess, you know, I didn't feel like much of that was uh I don't know if scary is even the right word. I guess it's semantics at some point. Um, there was, you know, a lot of memorable things that happened. Um, there, there was a firefight on the perimeter, but I was in the airport. You know, we were we were safe. We were well defended. Um, there was one point um, at which I had to run out onto the ramp and, and run into the uh, the hatch of the turn in C-130 there and, and let them know that we had just had an aircraft uh, crash into the mountain um, and 
try and identify a manifest of who was on that plane. Mm-hmm. And then they had to carry on and continue flying their missions that night, and that was um, that was not uh, that wasn't good. That was that was not good. So you know, there were some definitely some moments where you kind of feel like, oh, this is this is what we're doing here, and this is important, but this is what needs to happen. You just have to do it. Like you said, like Randy said, this is what we're trained for, and we're doing it. And then it's funny, when I was thinking, when I asked you that question about one of the scariest moments, I think it's almost scarier with kids. Having to figure out as a mother what to do with your kids. If I asked you that, it would probably be an easier answer. Yes, the scariest moment is when my kid asks me this or what I do. And the transition to being a mother from anything is impossible. But now imagine your transition or those listening today, Esther's transition from going from Afghanistan and, and flying and this military world to parenting and homeschooling, right? Esther, you've been homeschooling the kids now. Right. And uh-huh. as far as that transition to, like, was it as far as adrenaline almost, has there been, do you ever, <laughs> like, I know it's a very different type of adrenaline, but. <laughs> it, it absolutely is, yeah. No, I, you know, there's, uh, you know, the scary moments, you know, your, your kid gets hurt, you know, my son fell and broke his arm, you know, I had to carry him 800 yards back to the house, there's some adrenaline there, and then he's got to go under for surgery, you know, that's scary stuff right there. Um, You know, maybe scarier even, but, you know, it's it's a different kind of heart. I mean, when you're you're doing a a military mission and something that you're trained to do, um, as a student, I landed on an aircraft carrier, that was hard. Um, that was scary, but, you know, we, we were trained to, you know, fall back on our habit patterns and our training and get it done. But, you know, as a parent, you know, you've, you've got these kids that are with you all the time, especially as a homeschool mom. And that challenge is a, a completely different one. It just, it looks different. Um, you know, then maybe the challenge is to, to maintain your patience, you know, or um, just to really, you know, pray at the start of every day, you know, God, you um, where do I need to be today? How do I need to be present for them? Right. You know, this is this is really the goal of what I'm doing right now is to raise them. And, uh, you know, sometimes that task, it's, it's made difficult by the fact that we're doing it day in, day out. You know, they want dinner every night. <laughs> That's, uh, I mean, when it's just you and your husband, you can, you can do whatever. But, you know, you're raising these kids, and I think every parent can identify with the, the challenges of just that daily routine. Is there something in your training that you you fall back on as a parent? And that's probably an odd question, but I'm just curious. Like, is there something that you learned that you sort of it gets you through days now as well? Yeah, you know that's a that's an interesting question. I, you know, I I start every day with with prayer. Uh, I try and, and read some scripture I like, you know, some psalms, establish the work of our hands for us, you know, Lord, what is my task today? But, I, you know, that's not from training. I, you know, our kids have the disadvantage of having two Marines for parents. <laughs> um, you know, we, <laughs> I'm not going to say we don't hold room inspections on occasion, but, you know, <laughs> you, I don't know. I don't think that, you know, you're going to ask them in 10 years, and uh, maybe this question is a little different. They're probably going to have a lot to say about that, but I don't think that I don't think it can bear. I don't. Well, I can't believe we are out of time. And Esther, I hope you'll be willing to come back on again because we could talk about this for hours and hours and hours. Um, <laughs> we have one minute left, and I'm so sad because I have so many more questions. Um, I can't thank Randy and Esther enough for coming on tonight. I'm sure all of you feel the same. We are so lucky to have these people in our lives protecting us every day. And again, you're our heroes. You are our super people, men and women. And um, I just want to remind everyone tonight to tune into National Geographic Channel, 9 o'clock. No Man Left Behind, Black Hawk Down, The Real Black Hawk Down. And to Esther, who I'm going to beg to come back on the show and speak to me more. And I'll see you all Thursday night at 7 o'clock for more Mom for Mom moments. Thank you all for joining in this morning. Uh, Good morning, good afternoon. I don't even know how to end it. I'll see you Thursday. Bye-bye.
suddenly a sunbeam Thrilled me to my weary heart It was the prettiest thing I'd ever seen I knew I had to keep my love Keep my love alive Keep my love Keep my love alive If you served honorably in our nation's armed forces and you're looking for a way to continue serving your fellow veterans in your community, then join AMVETS. Each year, AMVETS members volunteer millions of hours at VA health care facilities from coast to coast, helping to improve the lives of their fellow veterans through the VA Voluntary Services Program. AMVETS posts and departments also participate in a wide variety of community service projects, ranging from Americanism in our schools to supporting the Special Olympics and Boy Scouts of America. If you no longer wear the uniform today, you can still serve through the AMVETS by joining today at AMVETS.org. Hi, I'm Danny Iowa. You may know me as an actor, but one of the things that I'm most proud of is my service to this country. In the Army, I saw firsthand how training and discipline instill a value that create great leadership abilities and a can-do spirit. Those same strong values stay with service members when they return to civilian life and enter the workplace. So remember the highest smart and bet on a vet. To learn more, call 888 888- 4-4-Salute or visit